Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get I don't know if you've heard or not, but uh, apparently Elon Musk signed a purchase agreement back in April to buy Twitter for $44 billion, which he insisted at the time that he could afford all by himself. I think it was big news at the time, <laughs> but uh, it appears that a couple weeks later, Musk maybe sobered up or something and realized that he'd perhaps taken on a little bit more than he actually wanted, and thus began a, sort of a two-month dance of really, really weak excuses to try to get out of the uh, supposedly binding contract that he had already signed. Uh, when he finally announced that he was calling off the deal using what I feel was a somewhat transparently laughable pretext having to do with spam on the platform, uh, which I will note as an aside is not actually a reason he can call off the deal, uh, Twitter's board chair, Brett Taylor, announced on Twitter, of course, uh, that the board was committed to closing the deal and that he'd be taking the case to the Delaware Court of Chancery, where he was confident that Twitter would prevail. Uh, suddenly, lots and lots of people became deeply interested in the Delaware Court of Chancery, uh, as well as the concept of specific performance which is what Twitter is demanding uh, in that court and which was agreed to in the, again, apparently binding purchase agreement. Uh, while plenty of people have expertise in how the federal courts work or how certain state courts work, the Delaware Court of Chancery is something of a unique beast, I think, uh, and one that many did not really understand, including myself. I sort of had to do a, a crash course <laughs> in trying to understand it. Now, enter Chancery Daily, uh, what I think had been more of a perhaps narrowly targeted publication, mainly for lawyers practicing in the Delaware Court of Chancery, uh, on the assumption not that many other people were that interested in that court. <laughs> uh, Chancery Daily suddenly became a key player in explaining just what the hell was going on in the Twitter versus Musk case. Uh, Chancery Daily, the publication, quickly set up a new Twitter uh, feed. Uh, apparently, there was an old one that was mostly unused, I think, uh, and then started tweeting out long, really, really interesting threads, providing all sorts of useful context and analysis of what was happening in the case. Uh, Chancery Daily was also, I would say, a somewhat expensive publication for everyday users, uh, and they have also now set up a much less expensive Substack uh, for those who uh, have a more general interest in, in this case. So I wanted to talk to someone from Chancery Daily to better understand the Delaware Court of Chancery and maybe some of the finer details of the Musk and Twitter fight. Uh, so here we are. Uh, I will note, however, that the Chancery Daily has chosen not to reveal the names of its staff and thus is appearing on the podcast today without revealing who they are. Uh, or going by the name Chance, I guess, is the nickname we've chosen. So <laughs> welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, one of our Twitter followers came up with that. I can't take credit for it, but I do kind of, I, I kind of like it. Uh, the founder of our publication said he might start going by Dell and then it could be Dell and Chance. <laughs> Dell and Chance. And I thought that was pretty cute. So uh, we might do a traveling road show at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. That works. That works. All right. So let, let's start with the basics. What is the Delaware Court of Chancery? Yeah, I mean, look, it's the it's funny because there's there's so many different ways to look at these things, right? It's a state court. It's just a, a sort of it, well, state courts are pretty common, right? Yeah, uh, they don't get as much press as this one does, but it it is simply a state court. Um, it is a court of equity, not a court of law, and we can talk about that in however much depth you yeah, want. Yeah, actually, uh, let's let's do that. I, I actually sure. do think that difference is is interesting and and somewhat important potentially here. So uh, yes, I, 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 I'm not sure that a lot of people listening will will know what that is. So let's. What is the difference? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, to even to the most uh, practiced. <laughs> lawyer. The <laughs> distinction has some uh, interesting uh, complexities, right? So the the traditional way of understanding it, well, first of all, there are many, many very self-referential definitions of, of a court of equity, which is one that can grant equitable relief, which is certainly not a useful <laughs> way of defining anything. But um, the, the main, the, the sort of lay distinction that you can make it at a very reductive level is that a, a court of law, you know, can can grant money damages. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is their relief, right? You you sue people in civil court, and most of the time, what you get are monetary damages. You're asking for money. Right. You're asking for punitive damages. Sometimes you're asking for you know compensatory damages, all sorts of damages. A court of equity is really uh, in its at least theoretical form intended to set the parties right. So either keep them at the status quo, if the status quo is what is equitable or to return them to some status quo ante, you know, time, hmm. the, the thing that was before. Uh, so be, if that is the equitable result. So, you know, in this court, um, the, the, the history is long and storied of how we ended up with an, a court of equity uh, in Delaware you can read the history uh, on on the court's website if you really want to go all the way back to 1792. And there's some, you know, interesting sort of socio-political factors that gave rise to this court's existence. Um, it's obviously, or maybe not obviously, but it is it is a sort of holdover from the British system. Um, Chancellor just has that vibe, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a very yes, it uh, Englishman with a wig vibe. Um <laughs> But, you know, so a court of equity has a lot of equitable powers are are kind of something that, that courts of law don't really have. They can't, as a matter of general practice, force people to do things. They right. can, they can, you know, there is a, such a thing as injunctive relief that courts right. of law can issue. And so there is some overlap and the distinction isn't nearly as clear as most people would like it to be between a court of law and a court of equity or what is a relief in equity versus relief under the law. So, so and obviously courts of equity use law. That's like, right. They're not mutually exclusive categories. Right. There, there is uh, clearly there's a lot of overlap. And I, I was thinking of, of injunctive relief when you were sort of raising the issue right. of like monetary relief, but injunctive relief is generally speaking, like you can't do this, not you must do this. I mean, I guess. Exactly. There's positive, there's right. sort of positive and negative and sort of, you know, 
negative injunctive relief. There's actually a, a different term for it that's not coming to me right now. But positive injunctive relief is saying you have to go affirmatively do something. There's this, you know, mm -hmm. quasi-famous or niche-famous case in from the Delaware Court of Chancery where two really wealthy Delaware families got in a fight about some trimming of hedges and, <laughs> and, and the court ordered, the court didn't only order the hedges to be trimmed. The court actually went and made an on-site inspection, which is very, you know, you just like you see on TV, like there's this K drama that I love, uh, the extraordinary attorney woo. And there's always <laughs> these on-site inspections. And I'm just like, when would a judge ever right. go out to, you know, inspect a plant or something? This literally was not a plant, like an industrial factory. This was like a plant, like an actual plant. And huh. he went, and inspected it to see if it had been trimmed. Um, so, so there's a, you know, early in this case, there was a piece written in Barron's about uh, how specific performance, specific for performance is kind of like the, the quintessential kind of equitable remedy, right? It's forcing so, so someone to do something. Just, just again, like on the assumption that some people listen to this might not even, I, I mentioned specific performance, but didn't define it in the intro. Like mm -hmm. what is specific performance so that people, people right. are up to speed? Specific performance is saying you signed a contract. You need to per specifically perform on that contract. It is saying that you need to do the thing that you said that you would do. Right. And so in this case, you have the merger agreement that that Musk signed not only on behalf of himself, but also on behalf of X Holdings 1 and mm -hmm. X Holdings 2, the shell companies that he had created to execute the merger. And Twitter is saying, look, we simply want you to perform the things that you said you would perform and purchase you know, do, do the merger, please. Right. And, um, and, and so, sorry, yeah. in, in the, in the context of a court of equity, that seems like the equitable result in theory. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is sort of like, so in, in a way, like I say, it's specific performance is sort of the quintessential kind of right. way of thinking about what equitable relief means. It's simply the court affirmatively saying you must do this. Now, like I, I began to talk about that piece in Barron's that was basically like, there's a problem with this specific performance bit and it's like a 14th amendment. Like there's this That's kind right. of uh, reductive that. argument that maybe it's like some sort of, uh, not slavery, but like that there is this kind of right. like, the, 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 I, I saw, I remember the piece. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, so, yeah, I, I don't remember the exact yeah. argument, but it was like, wait, what? There was, yeah, there, there was yeah. some sort of like, you can't force a human being to do it because uh, right. yeah, I'm not even going to get into it, but yes. I right. Exactly. There, there's, there's some like very high concept kind of piece that you could right. think of uh, issue with that. The, the, the problem being that when you're talking about a company or, you know, you're not talking about making a, a, a human even go trim hedges. You're saying, hey, look, if you don't want to go trim the hedges, you hire somebody right. to go trim the hedges, right? <laughs> like you don't have to, the court's unlikely to say you specifically have to go do this as a human <laughs> being, but it can certainly say, hey, this company that you signed on for or the, you know, X holdings must do right. X, Y, or Z. Um, the, it doesn't, it doesn't have the implications that I think people think it might have in specific performances, not an incredibly, it's not as common of a remedy as you might think, but it is a common uh, term in merger agreements. There is There was some study that was submitted as part of the record in the a case that will probably come up, which is the, the DECO pack, the mm -hmm. Snow Phipps uh, case, uh, where 
Chancellor McCormick, who is the one overseeing this case, uh, the Twitter versus Musk case, she granted specific performance in that instance. And there was some, there was this, I think it was like a 2018 KPMG report or something put into the record there, just listing all of these just pages and pages of chart of all the merger agreements of all the mergers that had happened over the past however many years and how many of them had specific performance clauses. And it was quite striking to see it as a mergers and acquisitions tool that it's just, it's incredibly common. Now it doesn't mm -hmm. come to the courts and, and become an issue that frequently. And so there isn't as much case law on it as you might imagine. Um, but also it's not that uncommon. So it's like, it, it, there's a little bit of weirdness because the Snowfips case that was decided in 2021 by Chancellor McCormick uh, is is such a, a a clear case where she granted specific performance that it kind of uh, makes it seem like it's easy to read that case and then think, oh well, that's the obvious result here. Hmm. And I think that because. Actually, it appears that they took the provision in this contract from the language oh, from wow. the Snow Phipps contract. Now, I don't know what the actual you know provenance of that that term is. I don't know if it's simply that it's the seller friendly term in the default you know database right. of seller friendly terms in merger agreements, but the language is strikingly similar. And there is some kind of whispering among the M and A community that 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 they were relying on the Snowfips decision, I, the Snowfips, look, if you're a good lawyer and you're a transactional lawyer who's writing documents like this, you see a decision like Snowfips and right. you say, okay, well, great provision that worked <laughs> there. So like right. you're going to, why wouldn't you take it and use it? It's either that, or it's just such a standard provision, uh, around this concept that it was, that they happen to be the same, but you know, it is striking that it's, that the language is almost identical and that, that, that that it was Chancellor McCormick's case, right? So it's like it it puts a lot of weight on that decision, um, yeah. As precedent, like as as a solid precedent. Now we're talking here, and I want to be clear because this has gotten very confused on the <laughs> interwebs. Uh, I'm talking about what remedy specific performance is a remedy right. is a is a thing that the court grants after they find they they say okay, who wins, who loses on the merits, right? Twitter wins. What do we do now? And specific performance is the remedy that Twitter is asking for. It's right. the, so there's two questions. There's does Twitter win on the merits, right. and then there's what is the remedy if they win. And my my key point that I made that was you know well wildly misinterpreted by some <laughs> people, but uh, <laughs> that's Twitter. Uh, you know, is that specific performance is the likely outcome if Twitter is successful on the merits here. And whether t Twitter is successful on the merits here is a separate question. Right. I, now I think they have a strong case, but uh, on the merits, but, but specific performance as a remedy is it just, you know, there was Professor Robert Anderson uh, did just write a little piece that he put up on SSRN yesterday, I think about, He's kind of the con the designated contrarian. He's like mm. the designated survivor, but for the <laughs> you know the contrarian position, um, saying why specific performance might not be as uh, apparent as, as obvious of a result as everyone is saying. So mm. there's there's position there's there's people on all sure people on all sides of this. But yeah, and and you know, all sorts of cases can turn out all sorts of ways. I don't think that, exactly, but. Um, 
you know, I, I assume that it doesn't come up that often because most times when when merger agreements are signed, they they go through with it. Or, That's right. Yeah. Or, There's so many yeah. cases where they just sort it out, right? right? They don't. It is not inexpensive to litigate, and it's not inexpensive to litigate in the court of chancery. I mean, it's a high quality court with incredibly sophisticated jurists presiding over the cases. The lawyers who practice there are incredibly specialized. Like you say, the Chancery Daily has been serving them for the last decade uh, with an incredibly technical uh, view on every single thing that happens in this court. And it's a, it, it's a small court, right? There's right. only ever been like 6,000 some people that have ever been admitted to the bar in huh. Delaware. <laughs> wow. It's like that's like one year of California <laughs> right, bar admissions, right? right? Um, so we have a small bar, like it's a small group of individuals, and that includes people literally hundreds of years ago who are long gone. Right. So um, it's a small bar. It's a you know Delaware requires local council to to have to be not just like make an appearance or not just introduce their outside counsel. The Delaware courts really rely on Delaware Council hmm. to help manage these cases. Like we are considered officers of the court in a real way that I don't think is quite uh, applicable in other courts. And I don't think that it's necessarily taken as seriously as it is in Delaware. Right. So that makes the quality that makes the quality that the court is able to operate at so much higher because they basically, you know, basically everyone who, who is admitted in the, to the bar in Delaware is, I, I think there's a genuine, I mean, at least I feel it, and I know most people do, there's a, there's a genuine kind of, mm, well, we have an obligation to be an officer of the court and right. to, to, to assist in, you know, the finding the, the just outcome. And in this court, that means what, what is the equitable outcome? That means what is the fair outcome? And, you know, it's, uh, it, you can see from the way this case has gone that every little thing is going to be fought over in a right. $44 billion transaction, <laughs> right? Every little blessed thing. <laughs> and, you know, there are dozens of lawyers working on, I, I can't even fathom the amount of, of, of lawyer hours and paralegal hours and staff hours that are going into the litigation of this case. Like it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah. And, and, um, just a couple more things on, on sort of trying to wrap my head around the court. I mean, so one of the things that everybody said and, and is playing out certainly in this case when, you know, when this case was first filed is that the Delaware Court of Chancery is sort of famous for moving quickly, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm used to in in <laughs> certainly federal court Morning cases court. <laughs> that go on forever, but also like honestly, most state court cases that I follow – you know, can be even worse than federal right, court in right. lots of cases where like, you know, in federal court there, I mean, judges never have any deadlines, but there are some deadlines in, in state court, some state courts that I've followed cases in there, there appear to be no deadlines for anything. <laughs> like, yeah. You can just go on forever. But, but, but this, I mean, obviously, you know, the case was filed in July. Um, you know, Twitter requested that that the trial be held in September, which is already extraordinarily fast. It's actually happening in October, which still seems fast. Right. <laughs> like the slow down version that that Musk yeah. asked for was February, which still seems fast. Right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, you know, maybe like uh, I think um, it might be as many as 
50% of the cases that the, the, the chancellor and vice chancellors here are handled on an expedited basis. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a pretty good percentage of the cases. Although most of those cases that are expedited are nowhere near of the complexity of this case. Sure. Uh, but the court is, you know, the court, uh, does a lot of summary proceedings like for shareholders to get access to books and records of a company in which they're a, a shareholder. And so they're, they're accustomed to doing things on, on short, Mm. turn times. Um, they have all kinds of processes in place that allow them to work fast. Again, having, you know, relying on the bar, the, the lawyers to do good work is a huge predicate to how they can get this job done, right? They have each, the chancellor and all the vice chancellors and the masters in chancery. Well, I'm not sure about the masters in chancery, actually. The, the chancellor and vice chancellors both have two law clerks. Now it was upgraded from one law clerk, um, maybe decade or decade and a half ago. But, um, there was also, there were actually two vice chancellors added just in the, in the recent past. So the court's been expanding. And, and how, as it's, how, how, how big, how many yeah. vice chancellors are there? How, how big is the right. court? So itself? right now there's chancellor McCormick and then there are three, uh, sorry, six vice chancellors mm. and two masters in chancery. And, and what is, so, what is, is the master in chancery like a magistrate? Or is it? What's you can the, think of it as the corollary of a magistrate judge okay. in federal court. It's a it's a similar non Article three position where you know they can handle a lot of matters. So one of the things that the Court of Chancery handles, in addition to basically all these corporate law issues, are estates mm -hmm. and uh, other kinds of guardianship matters and things that impact just everyday people's lives that have nothing to do with with corporate law. So. Sometimes the vice chancellors will get involved. I mean, a lot of times they will get involved in those cases if they turn into kind of major disputes. But most frequently, those will start off being assigned to a master's, uh, one of the masters in chancery. Um, and a lot of times the masters in chancery will later be elevated to vice chancellor. I mean, okay. that's happened frequently in the past. And um, But the six vice chancellors and Chancellor McCormick you know, they probably handle between 250 and 300 cases at any given time on their docket. So they're wow. handling a massive amount of, yeah. of litigation. Like, and they're just, I mean, as someone who has also practiced in the federal courts, uh, in specifically in Delaware, uh, you know, even like patent litigation, you see how patent litigation has sort of like rocket docket aspects, mm -hmm. but really nothing compares to how say. the court of chancery can handle these cases on an expedited basis. I, I, I've, I've written about patent rocket dockets uh, for a long time, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, both Texas it's and Delaware. Like this. And, and exactly. this is, this is still different. <laughs> this is definitely different. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a confluence of a lot of factors, but I do think that the size, like the, the, the question that always, so Delaware gets accused of being kind of provincial a lot because right. mainly because it's small and it's a small bar. And there's this quote from Chancellor McCormick that is entirely benign and was well-intentioned and is true, which is, <laughs> she says something like, you know, we all go out to, for drinks after hearings. Like uh. basically she was saying that the bar is collegial and right. that there is this, you know, kind of like, well, it's tiny. Like it, right. everybody knows everybody, right? There's no, there's just no two ways about it. Like there's only so many people you're going to know the other people you're going to want to respect and be respected by right. them. You're going to be kind human beings to each other for the most part, because you know, you're going to see this person tomorrow either on your right. side or on the other side. So, you know, then of course that leads to, to people 
keying <laughs> on that as some allegation of, you know, nefarious right. conduct. And it's like, no, it's actually just, I don't know that this model is scalable. You know, people always ask like, well, what can the federal courts learn from the, the court of chancery? And it's like, you know, I don't think this model scales up that well because part of its it, it, part of the reason why it can do things rapidly and efficiently is because it relies on trust and relationship and like reputation elements that are hard to replicate at scale. Like right. you, you suddenly have ten times as many people involved, and you've got way way less ability to manage. People can, you know, hide under, hide in the corners doing weird things. And like, right. but in this court, you can't. Like, people are going to know if you're being a bad actor or if right. you're doing something that's, you know, not helping the court move forward with, you know, doling out justice. It's like the people are going to know. Right. Right. <laughs> so the size is the, the thing that I think really, uh, is it's is is the biggest benefit um and and the expertise and the kind of you know level of i don't know just the level of quality of the work uh obviously there are outliers there's a curve in terms of like there's not like everything that gets submitted in this court is some optimal piece of legal you know right. scholarship but at the same time like Compared to other courts, the requirement that Delaware Council be involved in cases puts your you put your reputation on the line every time you file a, a new complaint or you file a, a a motion. Like, and the court will reiterate till they're blue in the face how much this matters to them that you only have so much powder, so you should right. keep it dry. You should use it when you need to. You know, there's a real question about how effective that can be because it's like, well, can you use uh, the bad behavior of counsel against a client. Like there's some real sure. thorny, I think philosophical and legal issue there. But recently vice chancellor Laster put out an opinion saying basically in the Hauppage case, I still haven't figured out how to pronounce Hoppage. It's H A U P P A G E. But anyway, in this case, he, he recently said, you know, I'm going to attribute the actions of counsel to their client. So like as a client, huh. you better be aware and I'm also going to use the actions of counsel if they're if they're being bad actors. I'm, I can use that information when I'm assessing the credibility of witnesses at trial. And so it's like a real, it's really the first time in recent memory where you've seen like, how can this act, this reputational threat have teeth? Like how right. can we, how can we legitimately, you, you can't just like hold a grudge against the, sure. you know, a, a party because the lawyer acts like a jerk, but that wouldn't <laughs> be, that wouldn't be equitable at all. But it is like a, a, a thing that needs to be navigated in terms of like, well, well, okay, but you can't also just have lawyers acting badly all the time right. with no consequences. Right. So, um, this is an interesting kind of argument on his part saying, look, I can, I can use this information. Like I can take these actions and I can, do something with them, which is that at trial, when I'm trying to listen to what the client has to say or whoever's on the stand for the, you know, for the party, like I can take into consideration when I'm assessing their credibility that they have acted a fool right. for the last six months in, in filing motions that were unjustified or, or whatever else. So, you know, it, it's interesting in the Twitter versus Musk case, it, it's a question to me how much of the trial testimony is actually going to be needle moving. Mm. I mean, you know, I wonder 
Well, Musk's deposition will be two or three days we hear now, but it's like you wonder how much of the actual trial testimony is going to be meaningful to the legal issues. It's kind of a question in my mind there, you know, in this court, we don't have like some law and order kind of trial situation. You have, first of all, the the thing I didn't mention earlier about the court of chancery is that it's, it's a non-jury trial court. Right. So you're never going to have a jury trial in this court. And that is an exceptional benefit. In my opinion. <laughs> no offense to the entire jury system, yes. but it really streamlines things to have uh, an educated jurist as the fact finder and the finder of law. Right. Um, you know, it just, it allows you to proceed so much more efficiently. Um, and, and it also makes trial very different. Like, I don't, I don't know how many people have watched a court of chance. Well, they, they used to be on, they used to be some for a brief moment. They were, they were, they were videoed, but that, that no longer happens. Oh. So, um, I know, right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's public access is kind of, hmm. <laughs> but the, the, the trial is mostly just witness testimony okay. uh, in front of the judge. And the main use of the trial for the judge, I call them, I say the word judge, but, you know, we, we're technically, we, we, I don't want to get people in the habit of <laughs> referring them to uh, as judges. But yes, the chancellor or vice chancellors, you know, they're basically assessing witness credibility at that point because there is pretrial briefing that is done in this court. Right which is not, not unstandard, but in this court, you know, you really put all of what you've got in your pretrial briefing, but then there's also post-trial briefing. So mm. you put all the witnesses on and then you do post-trial briefing before the court ever puts out an opinion in, in, in most cases. So sometimes there's even post-trial oral argument. Hmm. If the court has specific, like in DECOPAC, there was post-trial oral argument on certain issues. If the court still, if they get the post-trial briefs and then they still have questions, then they'll bring the parties back in for post-trial oral argument. So it's not, you know, that's where you do your, your opening and closing argument kind of deal. That's where you tie your case themes together. That's it's, it's not like you're doing all of that necessarily in the same kind of way as you would in, in federal court or certainly not the same way that you would in a jury trial. Right. But it sounds like, I mean, it, it sort of, all of that fits together. The story that you tell sounds reasonable, right? If it, if you're trying to sort of like figure out what is the right result, what is the equitable result that the combination of the things you were talking about, having the sort of small community where people know each other and the ability to like post-trial briefing, calling people right, back yeah. for further arguments where it's like, exactly. this is, this is an attempt to actually get it right. Not exactly. to, not to allow like just sort of like game playing to like determine the outcome. That's right. And, and it's interesting because the court has uh, from, you know, from our perspective at the Chancellor Daily, like we're trying to cover everything that, that goes in and out of this court. And right. so it can be slightly frustrating sometimes the degree to which the court allows the parties to kind of craft their own litigation kind of situation to, to tailor to the needs of the case. So like there right. aren't, you know, a ton of limitations on how briefs are filed or, I mean, there are rules, there are guidelines, there are both a set of rules and a set of guidelines and there's obviously best practices and that sort of thing. But, but the court is incredibly flexible again, like you say, in a way that I don't know how it scales right. because it's like the flexibility is part of what allows for it to to come to the equitable, you know, right. ruling in the end. But it's also, it's, you, you don't just have this, like, yes, you can file this motion on this day or this brief or this, like, like 
like parties can really drive a lot of that by negotiation and even by, you know, pulling the court in and helping with making some of those decisions. But it means that, you know, cases aren't cookie cutter in any way. Like they are not litigated in any sort of like, I mean, of course, like I say, there's standards and there are rules and there are guidelines. However, compared to other courts, it's like, it really is handcrafted. It's very bespoke <laughs> litigation in a lot of ways that, that drive me a little insane Artisan. when I'm trying to like, you know, yeah, exactly. Artisanal. Right. <laughs> That's right though. That is what, that is yeah. how, it, how it is. And it, it's an important part. I think it's, it's an important part of the ethos of the court right. that the parties get a say in how their cases are litigated. They're not being top down kind of forced into some, some, like I say, cookie cutter kind of framework. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's really interesting and it's like, you know, you can see how like both the points that you've made where it's like you get, you probably get better results, but also it probably just isn't scalable for, for, yeah. for most other kinds of, of courts and yeah. cases. So one, one question and, and you, um, we were talking about specific performance and everything, and I've seen a lot of people sort of go back and forth and, and, so, so one thing that I think has been confusing to a lot of people was that in the in the uh, purchase agreement for for Musk buying Twitter is there's like the one billion dollar breakup fee, mm. um, and mm. a lot of people yeah. assumed incorrectly, and and lots of people tried to correct this very early on. He can't just walk <laughs> away and say, "Here's a billion dollars." Right. Um, but now there is some discussion about saying that like the only things that the court can do here is either order specific performance, pay up the forty-four billion, or say do the breakup fee, the the one billion. But now, but from what you're saying, I'm I'm wondering that that doesn't sound right. If if the idea is like to create the equitable right. result, it sounds like there's a lot more on the table. Is that correct? I, I think that's t- a totally fair read of sort of the vibe of the court and mm-hmm. of the reality. And I think that it, it, uh, it trips a lot of people up because, <laughs> you know, I mean, and a, a court of equity doing what a court of equity does is going to trip a lot of people up in their thinking because they, it, it, it it's unusual, right. To, to have a court that's really invested in coming to the just an equitable right. outcome, no matter what all of the, you know, minutia and particulars are of what, ha- what, what are they allowed to do? No, they have broad discretion in coming to the equitable result here. And, you know, it's such, it's, it's such a mess in that whole 1 billion or maybe $2 billion <laughs> termination fee. I right. mean, the, the way that the contractual provisions interrelate is just an abomination. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, it's it's a disaster in there and and i i do i still see like there's like a whole new wave of people every week who come into our feed just being like oh no he can just walk away for one billion dollars and i'm just like oh my god i mean look it's not because i have any hard feelings against elon it's not because of any other reason than then that's not really likely to be the outcome like it's not likely that First of all, it's not likely that the court will feel constrained per se to some inequitable outcome, right? And it does feel a lot like there are ways in which a $1 billion walk would be a very inequitable outcome right. for a company that has had a lot of upheaval right. and a lot of disruption based on this, what was arguably a fairly hostile kind of takeover 
uh, right. not in the traditional sense, but just right. in, the, in the sort of colloquial <laughs> yeah. sense. Like it wasn't quite friendly to say, hey, you know, I love you, but I'm either going to, you're either going to let me buy you or I'm going to dump all of my shares into the market. Like, right. What, and what, set up what, a competitor. What option did Twitter's board <laughs> yeah. have? Yeah. Oh, and set up a competitor, right? Yeah. Like Twitter's board didn't really have any viable option at that yeah. point. They, 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 he, he made an offer over market quite significantly yeah. to some degree. And, you know, it's, if it's not hostile, I mean, find another word, fine, but it's like, <laughs> it, it wasn't exactly a negotiation of like, Hey, let's sit down and talk about right. this. It was like, take it or leave it. He said it, you know, it was a take it or leave it kind of offer. Yeah. And if you leave it, you're going to be harmed in the process. Yeah, if not so, hostile, it was antagonistic. Yeah. I think it was certainly. I think that's fair to say. Like, I don't. I and yeah. you know, I don't think that's a slam on him. I mean, hostile sure. takeovers were all the rage for for decades. Right. <laughs> um, they were done frequently, but you know, this was definitely something where I I think that the way that that equity would see this is that Twitter's board was in a position where they couldn't say no. Right. They couldn't allow him to dump 9.6% of the stock onto the market and, and still be protecting shareholders. Right. That would have been quite probably devastating to shareholders. And so they said yes. And then lots of things proceeded to happen that have <laughs> damaged the company. Yes. Right. And and that have that have, you know, I, I can't even imagine just as a human being what it's like to be working there right now, right? <laughs> Under so much uncertainty. And one of the things that that Chancellor McCormick mentioned in the DecoPack opinion that I just always come back to because because she didn't have to say it, but when she was wrapping up her intro and, and explaining that she was going to grant specific performance, she said, scoring a win for deal certainty. Hmm. Because deal certainty is kind of the 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 highest state of, of, of being for a, a corporation or a, 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 the land of corporate law, right? Like right. deal certainty is arguably like the necessary predicate for, for operating a company, for operating any kind of relationship, really. I mean, sure. if everything, any, if we all just decided to renege on all of our agreements, you know, life would be real messy. And so and deal I think certainty we're, we're, we're is, seeing that in this case, yeah, right? We're right. Exactly. It. You can see all of the, all of the things that happen when you can't rely on, on a deal going through. And so I think that, that she, like I say, she didn't have to say that she could have just mm -hmm. said, I'm granting specific performance, but she, necessarily tied it to this ideological view that the 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 role of corporate law in Delaware is to to allow companies to to have certainty mm -hmm. it's 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 a high kind of value of this court and so i i think that that guides her thinking in 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 what i what i said in i've said in various contexts and i've i've taken my Taken, I've gotten some responses about it, but I will say it again because I do think it's it's true and accurate. And it's not, again, meant to be a slight on Elon. Or it's not hating on a billionaire. It's that he's the arguably one of the richest person in the world entering into a $44 billion merger agreement. There is no one else who has a higher standard to, to meet, to do every 
everything imaginable to be sure that when you sign on that dotted line, you are ready to execute. You are ready to perform. Like they're just, there is no way that you could make that standard of, of, of diligence higher. Like you better be so sure that this is what you want, that this is something you've researched, that this is something you have dug to the ends of the earth on. You have basically unlimited resources you're going to enter into a contract like that. There's just no, there are no caveats to the amount <laughs> of, of responsibility that he had Right. to be entirely sure at the moment he signed the contract that that was, that was what he wanted. Yeah. I just don't know how else to say it. It's like there's <laughs> no one who lives under a higher standard in the court of chancery than the richest man on earth. Right. Right. There's no excuses. There's no just kiddings. There's no, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it didn't mean it or no take backsies. Right. Like there's, there just aren't. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's kind of incredible. And like, you know, I mean, th- there were all sorts of ways if he was concerned about certain things that, that, you know, where it's like, I mean, obviously everybody talks about like the fact that, that due diligence was explicitly waived in, in the deal, but like they, they could have signed something that was slightly less binding, right? I mean, sure. There's, I there's, mean, he signed yeah. one of the most seller friendly merger agreements you could imagine. I mean, look, he did negotiate for information rights right. because he had to, you know, presumably wanted to be able to access information for his lender's to approve their financing. But as time went on, he, he kind of took on responsibility for a lot of that financing even, right? He originally had a lot more financing and then he slowly kind of uh, nibbled away at it and took it back for himself and said, no, 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 I'll, I'll be on the hook for this. And so now I think he's in a position where like at my last count, he's on the hook for some 30 billion of the 44 or something around there just personally. Right. Right. So even if there's some portion of it that is still in any way contingent upon financing, I've got to tell you that the court is not going as a matter of general equitable principles. If he has done anything other than his reasonable best efforts to make this deal happen, which we have just seen publicly, (laughs) him doing things that don't necessarily meet that standard, right? (laughs) That's an understatement I know. (laughs) But it's like, even if you're generous, even if you just say, look, hey, uh, you know, no, he has has not been of the posture. A poop emoji is not of the posture (laughs) that I will go to the ends of the earth to make this deal work. Right. That I will will do whatever it takes to, to... to keep the promise that I made. Right. Right. It isn't, it's just not like, let's just be real. It's not the standard. (laughs) And so, you know, I don't, there are, there are a lot of complexities in, in the fine points of the little Romanettes of the merger agreement, but I, I don't, I don't think as, as a matter of equity that it flies unless there is some, unless we have different facts than what we currently have, right? Like, and it's possible that we'll get different facts at trial, but the way this case has been being litigated in the public sort of eye, the parties haven't been shy about sharing facts (laughs) that are good for their side. And so I just feel like, you know, the idea that with however many weeks to go before trial that we're going to have some bombshell reveal of some deep facts that show things that, that we don't have on the table now in any way is just, 
it's just unrealistic. It's not the way that it's the way it works on TV, sure, but it's not the way that litigation in the real world, even in the court of chancery where things happen in an awesome kind of way, they don't, there aren't a lot of Matlock moments in the court of chancery. <laughs> like it's, it's quite a reserved place where, you know, you, you find a lot of the facts before trial. Trial, yeah. like I say, is more of a credibility battle. Um, and again, in this case, I don't know that a lot of the, 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 the main issues are going to hinge on the credibility of witnesses. I don't, I don't, it's not really that kind of a case. Right. Uh, a lot of it's going to come down to the language and the merger agreement. And then a lot of it's going to come down to what's an equitable result uh, based on the facts, either in spite of the language of the merger agreement <laughs> or, you know, in line with it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I mean, and, and one thing, and, and I had written something along these lines recently, one thing that's been interesting to me and, and, you know, paying attention as much as I can, uh, not as much as you, but like to, to the, the hearings and all of the pretrial motions, the nonstop, uh, <laughs> motions and, and, and rulings is that like, it, it seems like to me again, as a total outsider and, and complete noob, as it comes to the, the, uh, court of chancery that, um, so far Twitter is doing pretty well <laughs> and Musk mm. is not doing so well. And the way that I, I, I wrote it, wrote about it was saying effectively, it, it doesn't like, there's no sign of like any, any like bias or something by the judge, which is like what, what idiots jump to, <laughs> but, but, but just like the relative, uh, like standing of, uh, in the case standing is not the right yeah. word, but like, you know, yeah. th that like, Twitter appears to have a, a generally strong case, not a perfect one. And Musk seems to have a generally weak case. And the ruling so far seemed to indicate that where like Twitter's not getting everything that they asked for, not by a long shot. They're, they're losing on some of these things, but like Musk seems to be asking for a ridiculous amount and not getting anywhere near it. And the chancellor seems to be like very clearly saying like, stop, messing around like yeah. don't waste my time with this stuff yeah I, she really doesn't uh put up with with nonsense especially like <laughs> yeah. you know, i think a lot of uh, litigators across the country are looking at some of her rulings and i mean they're explicitly saying like wow i really wish i had a jurist <laughs> in my case who would act right. like you know who would see so clearly the shenanigans that go on in discovery sometimes and right. would just put their foot down about it and she is here. She's so incisive about cutting to the heart of the matter. I'm just never endingly impressed with the way that she isn't swayed by, by fairly persuasive rhetoric on either sure. side. She is incredibly, and she's been talented like this since she was a practicing attorney at just like cutting to the heart of the matter in a way that that sees through all the, the flowery language and the right. crying and the complaining and the, you know, fake kind of NBA foul, like throwing yourself <laughs> on the ground, like you've been murdered, you know, for <laughs> right, a, right. for a layup or something. It's like, she just does it. She isn't moved by that. And she, she can put her finger directly. She's like, it's like when you go to the, you know, I don't know, chiropractor and like one of the massage therapists and they put their finger on your back and it's like, <laughs> Oh my God, it's like the most painful place. Right. It's like, how did you know that's where my, right. hurt? she is like that, but with the law, like she just puts her finger exactly on 
the thing that is the the crux of the issue. Right. And and like you say, I mean, by no means has Twitter won uh, disproportionately, but her her condemnation of parties behavior has certainly been limited to Musk's yeah. side. She has been very clear that she does not like the way that they are going about they're fulfilling their dis- or, or not fulfilling their discovery obligations and and she's not going to keep putting up with it right, right. she's not going to uh indulge them as they might be indulged in another court uh, yeah i mean that's the way it goes here yeah i mean it's kind of interesting because like you know he has very good lawyers like they're they're not bad lawyers like you yeah. know i i've covered plenty of cases where there are bad lawyers and it's obvious that they're bad right. lawyers no. and and it's actually no, they're Kind kind of amazing how much judges will put up with in lots of other courts. Yeah, totally. But but totally. here I think I think they're they're good lawyers who have been dealt a really really weak hand, uh, and and are you yeah. know perhaps I don't know how much of it is like driven by the client <laughs> versus you know. Yeah, it's hard to know. It yeah. really is like I I don't have a, a good sense of of that, but I do know that they are excellent lawyers. Yeah, both the Quinn and Scadden teams. I mean, there's just no you 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 can't you can't doubt that you can question some of their you know like uh <laughs> methods but they are they're basically doing the kind of litigating that they're known for that right. they are prized for by certain people right they're they are going to the mat all the way right. and that's they're taking the hits when they get them because of how they're litigating but you know presumably it's how the client wants to litigate the case and they are excellent lawyers and they are doing sometimes you don't have the better facts, right? Yep. Sometimes you are in in a $44 billion transaction. <laughs> that's a lot at stake. And that's like a lot of, you do whatever it is that you can do to just right. throw the Hail Marys. And, and I, I, you know, yeah, bad lawyering looks like one thing, right? right? Like just crappy lawyering. And that's not what this is by any means. Like this is, this is excellent, high quality lawyering, but can you disagree with like a, a lot of their tactics and things? Sure. And clearly the chancellor, what she really doesn't like is, you know, the gaming kind yeah. of discovery things that just are, that that's as soon as there's any implication that they're, they've been disingenuous or that they've been trying to like, you know, mm, just misrepresent anything, even in the smallest way. And I mean, I think like with this, there was one where they they just got themselves in trouble by by maybe just miscommunicating. I mean, I can't even fathom the the volume of emails and the length and the just I, I read some of these exhibits that are attached to the briefs and it's like, you know, five, it'll be five chains of emails between these lawyers. There's probably five hundred going around these this case to all the team. And I can't even barely get through one thread without just literally wanting to rage quit the law forever, you know, because it's like, this is misery. This is yeah. absolutely the worst part of being a lawyer. This is just the negotiating discovery and discovery disputes is a horrible, horrible experience for everyone involved. There is no two ways about it. And so, you know, uh, the mistakes are bound to happen and, you know, miscommunications are bound to happen. And every, there's a high standard in Delaware for how counsel treat each other. Right. And one thing that she certainly won't tolerate is just, we saw it in the, the, the David Sachs motion to compel, mm-hmm. uh, 
or no, it was a motion to quash that the, Dave, the right. third party had filed. And, you know, you saw basically non-Delaware lawyers communicating with Delaware lawyers. And I mean, just me reading the, the attachments, the, the email chain, it was like, Oh, whoa. Like this is <laughs> not the way we talk to each other. I mean, we're, like Delaware is a very, it's, you know, I mean, you call it all sorts of things, but it's fairly like reserved and, and, and proper and a little prim and a little, <laughs> you know, uh, uptight maybe even, but it's like, you can really see why that pays off because when things become heated enough, around enough money at stake. Right. When the when 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 what's at issue is so huge, like tempers are bound to flare, like things are bound to get hot. And so if you start from a point of just like casual disregard of other human being, you know, politeness sort of considerations, then you quickly escalate to just like <laughs> ridiculous behavior. But it, if you start from some kind of even overly formal kind of way of interacting, then at least when things heat up, they just kind of get a little warm. You know, right. they don't they don't just devolve into this name calling and, you know, just like angry emailing. It's just it's it's unusual in Delaware. I mean, yeah, and Delaware is better for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the Sachs motion to quash was, was performative for, for a variety oh, of yeah. reasons. So, so did she. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yes. did the chancellor. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, we don't need to go into details there, but yeah. It's just, yeah. Right. Um, but um, anyway, this, this is, this has all been really, really fascinating. It, it, just to, I, and I could go on, but I'm, uh, this is, this is, we're, we're getting, we're getting a little bit long. And so, so uh, I, I do want to offer you a chance to just like, we've talked a little bit in passing just about, about the publication, but do you want to just like tee up what it is that you do and and maybe talk about the sub stack as well and the Twitter feed? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, so we, we've been around for a little, little over a decade now. And like you said, mainly serving the practitioners in Mm -hmm. the district, I call it the district, but it's technically not the district. It's more formally the court of chancery. And, and, and honestly, we cover all of the Delaware courts because we cover the Delaware Supreme court, Mm -hmm. particularly when it relates to anything corporate or commercial law. And we also have been covering the Delaware superior court, which gives me a, always a nice reminder of why the court of chancery is sort of the OG uh, court of awesomeness because the superior court operates a lot like a more standard court of law kind of um, Mm -hmm. state court. And so you can just see constantly be reminded of the quality of the work that comes out of a court, like you said, that can operate on a bespoke artisanal basis. (laughs) Uh, It just provides a lot of benefits. But anyway, we've been serving that community of practitioners for the last decade, basically, and also serving, you know, trying to serve the judiciary itself um, mm-hmm. and academics. We provide free subscriptions to members of the judiciary and to academics, um, but we do offer paid subscriptions to the people who are. We 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 charge approximately point zero one billable hours per month, which we think is a fair, <laughs> fair trade. It's a good way to do it. Yeah, uh, maybe it's point zero zero one. No, <laughs> it's it's a fixed fee, but still, sure. um, but you. Know, that publication, our daily email publication is obviously mainly tailored to to practitioners who are way in the weeds, who right. are, you know, obsessed with the the fine points of the legal minutiae. We cover the court's calendar and all of the complaints that are filed and all of the 
basically everything that happens in the court. Um, and then, like you said, when this case came around, I thought, well, maybe we should fire up that Twitter account. <laughs> and uh, it just seemed apropos given the parties in the case. Yeah. And, you know, then mm, long story short, here we are. And <laughs> it's been, in, we've always had a desire to serve a sort of more lay or pop, pop culture kind of uh version of what we provide to lawyers we've all look we're big nerds right we're like <laughs> we love this stuff on a right. very weird personal intellectual basis and i personally have kind of a life mission of like bringing nuance to the people right, right. like i just think that nuance is so lost in <laughs> in the world right now and it's it to me it just is the problem it is the the fact that we are so reductive about everything in the way that we talk about things is is killing society in a real way like yeah. it's it's so difficult to communicate with people that we disagree with in part because we're not operating on the same set of facts and in part because we've lost all ability to to have nuance to hold two ideas that are somewhat contradictory in our minds at the same time yeah like i just think that's key to being a good human. Yeah. And so for me, it's been, you know, really fun, uh, developing a community on Twitter. And at some point Twitter got a little unwieldy for handling the <laughs> amount of like the volume of information that I was putting out there. So we did decide to start a sub stack to fulfill sort of some of the, you know, give, give longer form content, a place to live. That's more meant for people who are, and a lot of our followers are lawyers, but a lot of them are lawyers in different districts or different right. courts or, you know, di even different fields of law. Um, but a lot of them are not lawyers. A lot of them are just like people who've always had an interest in the law. I think there's actually a huge community of people who have a real, deep interest in the law and who have an intellectual curiosity about the law, but they just don't have any outlet for it other than yeah. some, you know, kind of not great, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like TV shows or like, you know, right. things that are like just not informative in any real way or don't allow people to use their minds to actually think through deep issues. And so it's been super fun, uh, developing this community and, and, I don't know what's going to happen. Like after this case, it's so fascinating <laughs> to think like, well, you know, every few years there's a pretty big case in the Delaware court of chancery. But to me, it's always this interesting, like every case that, that, that we cover, we cover, you know, opinion, multiple opinions every single day in our legal publication. Right. And so it's like, it's very odd for me to be so <laughs> focused on a single case for this amount of time, right. but it's also been, been fascinating. And I, I, I'm just grateful for all the people that have supported us and, you know, have, have made it possible. And it's been a wild ride and it's not even, I mean, I was just thinking yesterday, like it's not even really get it. It's not really even started yet. Like, <laughs> that's right. you know, we've still got time to trial and then we've got trial and then we've got appeal and then we've got, Oh my gosh, we could just go on forever. Yeah. I just, just really quickly. I, I, how does the appeals process work actually? It, it, yeah. So after the, so like, like I mentioned before, there's this, the, the phenomenon of post-trial briefing is not something that happens in every court. Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned, it's partly because of the the fact that there's no jury, that they're, right. the, the whole dynamic is different. So after trial, uh, Chancellor McCormick will call for post-trial briefing. Like I said, in some cases there will be post-trial oral argument, which would most likely happen after she receives post-trial briefing. I think a lot of the timeline around that is going to really depend on how hard Twitter wants to push 
for speed mm. because normally like even in the KK case where there was this expedited proceeding, uh, there were the, the, the KK wasn't actually on a super accelerated timeline. There wasn't quite a, due to the dynamics of the case, there wasn't quite as much, uh, urgency you could, you could say, but even there, they, they took like a month for post-trial briefing. I'd say, you know, normally that's a fairly standard amount of time, maybe even longer, mm-hmm. well, certainly longer in some cases, but you know, here it's hard to gauge. It's like, how fast does Twitter want to be on the hook for completing post-trial briefing? Probably she will take their argument into consideration because they are the ones with what she has made clear. She thinks is the risk of irreparable harm during any kind of delay. So it's like, well, did they say, Hey, we can get this done in a week or something. I mean, I don't know how crazy did they go in terms of pushing that, but anyway, there'll be a period of time after the trial ends on the 21st, uh, that will be for the parties. They'll be just off working on their post-trial briefing and then she'll receive the post-trial briefing. She'll either call for oral argument on it or not. Then she will put out her ruling. You know, she's put out a hundred page ruling in a weekend before, but I don't know that, you know, she does amazing (laughs) things, but I don't, I don't, I also don't know like, you know, how fast I can go. I would say in KK again, it was about a month from her post-trial oral argument to her opinion. Um, so, you know, depending on how you parse that timeline, you might be at the end of the year before you get the, the opinion, you might if, if everybody is like on their guns, like you could see it getting done by the end of November. Right. Um, but again, that would be like super, superhuman. But then after the opinion comes out, then there'll be an order and final judgment and then it will be appealable as of right to the Delaware Supreme Court. And then <sighs> what the <laughs> Delaware Supreme Court does with it from there, like where there's a whole other, you know, I mean, this is like, this is the can of worms that I've been eating from lately. Uh, <laughs> like just, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot, there's a whole other world to think about in terms of, like I said before, I think that the, the deco pack cases, like it's such a great example of McCormick's thinking on specific performance, but it settled after her post-trial opinion came out. So it right. never got appealed. Oh. And so like, there's also a, a case that is going to be, heard at the Supreme court, the level four core power yoga case is going to on the Wednesday of trial in the Twitter versus Musk matter. The the Supreme court is going to hear a case on specific performance that was decided last year that could technically like implicate issues in this case. It's crazy. And so, and then in, in November, not to just keep everybody, you know, hooked (laughs) to our feed, but like in November, we've got the Tesla compensation trial. And in the middle of the Tesla compensation trial, the Supreme court is going to be hearing the solar city appeal. (laughs) So it's like just Musk all 24 seven, you know, it's just never going to end. (laughs) Incredible. It is never going to end. So, um, Yeah. yeah. So then the appeal, like I say, could take, they've done interlocutory appeals as fast as you know they turn like elections cases and things of right. you know super super importance they can turn them around super fast so that appeals process could go could quick. last uh, you know could go quick could could last a couple of months i really think that everything is back to the trial court and done well within the outside financing date in april i don't right. i don't think there's any chance that the supreme court just says nah tough <laughs> tough cookies you can wait you know i right. think they 
they will they will participate at the requested pace. Um, wow. So. All right. Well. Yep. Fascinating stuff. Uh, and uh, if if you are not already following the Chancery Daily on Twitter, you should. It's it's a really great account. Uh, and and check out the Substack as well. Uh, and we will continue to watch this and I will continue to learn from you uh, as we go through this. It's been super helpful. I think this discussion was, was really, really helpful as well. Uh, I, I learned a lot. It was pretty enlightening. Uh, and so thank you very much for, for all that you of do. Of course. And for taking thanks the time for having to, us. to have this uh, conversation. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. And uh, we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap.